And for these weeks leading up to Easter, we've been giving consideration to the cross and how Jesus' death uh, on the cross gained for us a new life, a new approach to life, an intimate relationship with God. This morning, the theme is going to be taken from Galatians chapter 5 of my talk to you, and it focuses on the fact that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so I'd like you to engage with me for a moment here. We have some chains that are on the floor uh, underneath the chairs on the outside of the aisles. And so if you're sitting in one of those chairs, uh, either on, against this wall over here or here, uh, here and against this wall, if you wouldn't mind just reaching under your chair and, uh, and pick them up. And then I'm going to invite you to take them. They've been split. So hopefully this will happen easily and uh, just kind of uh, push them apart and take the, uh, the, the chain off and then pass it on to the person next to you. If you find that somebody around you is having a little bit of difficulty uh, doing that, uh, you may want to uh, help them out. But I think they're split so that we can do that uh, relatively easy. And so I would invite you just to do that uh, here as I begin my talk, and we'll uh, make reference to these in uh, a, a little later on. Uh, directly across the street from where we lived when we spent our 10 years in uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, was an historic plaque marking the location of a Negro burial ground. The unique significance of this site is captured by the inscription on the plaque, and I read a, a portion of it here for you. Here stood a Baptist church erected in 1830 through the exertions of a former British soldier. John Oakley, who, although white, became the pastor of a predominantly Negro congregation. A long tradition of tolerance attracted refugee slaves to Niagara, and many of the congregation were buried in that cemetery, including the, the daughter of the pastor. But the plaque makes reference to the implementing of the Upper Canadian Act against slavery that was passed in 1793. Adjacent to the burial ground plaque is another historical marker that describes the act and its implementation. Inspired by the abolitionist sentiment emerging in the late 18th century, Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe made Upper Canada the first British territory to legislate against slavery. The act did not provide freedom for many who were already slaves, but did prevent the importation of slaves, particularly from the South, and agreed that the future children of slaves would be set free at the age of 25. Faced with growing opposition, slavery in the British colonies declined, and with the passing of the Imperial Act, was abolished in the British territories in 1834. Simcoe had previously been a member of the British Parliament and had come under the influence of William Wilberforce, who, along with some other like-minded parliamentarians, were pushing for the British Parliament to abolish the slave trade. Wilberforce, in turn, had been challenged by his pastor, John Newton, to initiate proceedings toward the abolition of slavery. Newton previously had been a, a captain of a slave ship for many years. However, during a fearful storm at sea, he had a remarkable conversion experience with Christ. His life was dramatically changed. 
Regret for the thousands of human cargo that he had transported to their deaths and enslavement led Newton into church work and the eventual writing of the hymn, Amazing Grace. From his position as rector of St. Mary Wool Church in London, Newton was instrumental in lobbying for the abolition of the slave trade. It was Newton who inspired Wilberforce to pursue his quest to bring an end to the inhumane trade of slaves. For almost two decades, Wilberforce engaged in backroom politics and fiery debates in Parliament before he finally succeeded in bringing those in power to agree to outlaw the slave trade. Although human trafficking in slavery was abolished, the actual emancipation of slaves throughout the British Empire did not occur until almost another two decades and passed just three days before Wilberforce died. Newton, Wilberforce, and Simcoe viewed slavery as an offense against Christianity. They argued for the freedom of those who were subjected to the brutality of forced, tortuous confinement based on the liberty that they had come to experience as faith participants in the grace of God. The message of the Christian faith is one of freedom. And nowhere is this freedom more powerfully epitomized than in the emancipation of our sinfulness that is found in the historic message of the cross. The cross is intended to become the burial ground for our brutal confinement to sin-wrecked living. Jesus' death on the cross brought about your freedom and mine. This is the premise behind the Apostle Paul's bold declaration. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul's pathway to arrive at this realization was not totally unlike John Newton's experience that prompted him to write the the hymn Amazing Grace. Much like Newton, it was as a result of a dramatic conversion experience with Christ that the Apostle Paul had come to discover the liberating power of the cross. He had reached this place in his spiritual search as a result of an extraordinary encounter with the risen Jesus. His life-changed experience with Jesus came while Paul was angrily traveling about, threatening, beating, and dragging people against their will to prison for their belief in the teaching that they could live free in Christ. While on his way to the city of Damascus, just as he entered the off-ramp that would take him into town, Jesus stopped him in his tracks by appearing personally to Paul. And Paul's life was forever changed. Now, I will admit that my off-ramp encounters do not always match the experience of the Apostle Paul. More often than not, I find these stretches of pavement to be idiot zones that provoke irrational behavior. Recently, I had taken the exit ramp off Highway 27 onto the QEW. It was dark, but I could see on the roof of the car that just came up quickly behind me what I hoped to be a ski rack. But then ski racks don't flash red and blue lights. So when that started to happen, I felt that things began to go downhill for me. I pulled to the side of the road, and this nice officer walked up to the side of my car. Don't you just love how they have that little twinkle in their eye and their disarming smile? Anyway, as Janie was fumbling in the glove box of the car for my registration and insurance papers, 
He opened the conversation by asking me if I had experienced any problems with another driver on the road. I replied, no. He then went on to report to me that he had been flagged down by a motorist who had told him that I had cut him off, given him the finger, and yelled the F word at him. (laughs) By now, my wife had stopped searching for the papers and leaned forward to speak with the officer. I knew exactly what she was going to say. He's a pastor. I wasn't sure that that would help. And so I gently squeezed her knee to stop her from saying anything. I assured the officer that I would, had not behaved in that manner, and to which he replied, well, I didn't really think so, and then walked away. But as I drove off, there was a part of me that wanted to find this driver who had made these accusations against me and set him straight. I wanted him to know that I would never do such a thing, that I am bothered by his misjudgment of my character, that he needs to get his facts straight before jumping to conclusions because he was producing fake news. I wanted to prove that I was faultless. You see, my off-ramp experience left me very much aware that I am hopelessly self-absorbed and can easily become bound by the yoke of self-preservation. Sure, the policeman had declared that I was not at fault, but that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be able to exert my right to defend my integrity. The cross sidelines my urgency to defend my self-righteousness. It tells me I'm not as good as I think I am. It is the squeeze on my leg that stops me from making excuses about my behavior. It confronts me with the reality that although I may think I am able to be in control of myself, in the long haul I fail. It tells me I need to die to myself. However, and this is important, for those times when we struggle with our failed attempts to live above our failures and wonder if we will ever get beyond ourselves, the cross becomes for us our place of refuge. At the cross of Christ, we can lay down our feeble attempts to stop trying to make ourselves something we are not. The cross liberates us from self-deception to experience wonderfully fulfilled and freed lives in Jesus. When Paul walked away from his off-ramp experience near the outskirts of Damascus, He knew that he would never again embrace the self-improvement model of spirituality. He had come to the realization that due to the amazing grace of God, he could be set free from the enslaving religious practice of trying to live a holy life. And this conclusion would put the Apostle Paul on a collision course with the religious establishment of the day. But he was convinced beyond any doubt that the cross of Christ was all that was needed to break the yoke of slavery to self and to sin that binds us. In short, Paul sees freedom as the very heart of the Christian message. God has set us free through Christ's death on the cross and has placed his spirit within us so that we no longer need to wonder about how we become rightly related to God. With this statement, Paul says we are free from the yoke of slavery that religious practice and performance mentality hold on us. And as we've been discovering over the past couple of weeks, 
Paul argued against the trafficking of law keeping and religious practice as the way to gain release from sin's bondage in his letter to the Galatians. He concluded that such teaching only leads to remaining enslaved to self-righteous attempts to gain God's favor. If, as it is thought by many biblical scholars, the book of Galatians is actually the, the first of the apostles' writings to appear in the New Testament, it shows to how large an issue this was in the early church. The cross is at the center of the breaking of the yoke of slavery and the freeing of our souls. It is through the cross that we gain freedom from the sin and self-absorption that enslaves us. This breaking of the power of sin in our lives and the subsequent being set free from its hold over us is commonly referred to as a conversion experience. And so I earlier referred to the Apostle Paul's experience on the off-ramp going into the city of Damascus as his conversion The biblical word to describe the spiritual experience is metanoia, meaning a radical transformation of our inner self. Conversion opens us up to a new agenda, a new arrangement of priorities, a new set of values, a new way of life. We discover that a personal relationship with Jesus cannot be contained in a list of do's and don'ts. Life change apart from self-effort is what occurs. Our imaginations become stretched to see beyond ourselves to the possibility of living wonderfully fulfilled lives in hope and freedom. We move from the mindless engaging of faith that makes little difference to our life choices to a powerful, power-filled response to God and His truth. We are changed, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. This transformation takes place when we open our lives up to Jesus Christ and by faith invite Him to take the lead role in setting our life's direction. Brendan Manning makes an interesting observation between metanoia, the transformation of our inner self, and paranoia, which he describes as the fleeing from God and our true selves. Paranoia of the spirit, Manning suggests, is an attempt to deny the reality of Jesus in such a way that we rationalize our behavior and choose our own way. He goes on to explain that each of us lives in the tension between metanoia and paranoia, between experiencing a recreating of our true selves by the Spirit of God and the searching for an explanation to excuse our misdirected behaviors. None of us is immune to counterfeit discipleship. Discipleship marked by smugness or complacency and the self-sufficiency that poisons spirituality. We cry out that we want to be changed, but in reality we resist the one who can bring about the sought-after change we long for. We want freedom, but we want it on our terms. We become suspicious that there must be more to gaining freedom from our condition than God is letting us in on. An example of paranoia of the spirit of biblical proportions is linked to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This event we celebrate as Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, which we did last Sunday through waving palm branches and singing children. To cheering crowds shouting Hosanna, which literally means save, Jesus made his final entry into the city. With uninhibited enthusiasm, the people welcomed Jesus into their hopes and their dreams. And then in a demonstration, 
of extreme and unreasonable suspicion of Jesus' mission. A few short days later, the cheering crowds became jeering crowds, crying out in anger and hatred, crucify him. We like to think that we are unlike those members of the crowd who threw away their hope for salvation by dismissing the credibility of the one who would bring them what their heart's cry expressed. However, our cry to be saved from the condition we find ourselves in will follow the same track as the fickle crowd if we think for a moment that the way to change is any different than the way of Jesus. The cross is the final destiny of all who truly desire to be saved and set free from the condemning cycle of self-righteousness. The cross wakes us up to our need. It provides us with a vivid awareness of how hopelessly self-absorbed we are and makes us realize that any effort to free ourselves from our condition prevents us from experiencing the relief of loving dependence upon God. For Paul, this was the central theme of his teaching. Any question about his commitment to the cross as the means of the power of God at work in his life and the lives of others was simply out of character with what he believed. And so to those who accused the Apostle Paul of of showing paranoia of the Spirit, Paul responded, As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. If the the radical demands of the cross are never proposed, if we settle for the half-hearted observance of a lukewarm set of standard behavioral traits and pious attempts at looking good, we become hypocritical and self-righteous. When we try to save ourselves by our own works, we enslave ourselves all over again to that for which Christ has come to set us free. The cross liberates us from the dooming cycle of self-improvement by declaring freedom from sin and self-absorption. With a gracious and understanding that only God can validate, the cross liberates us from alienation and self-centeredness and offers a new possibility to become real with ourselves, real with God, real with one another. We have this strange dance that we engage in as Christ followers. We want to appear authentic, but also desire to keep up our reputation. That was another issue in the Galatian church that Paul spoke against. He challenged the Galatians to really assess what was behind their adherence to certain religious practices and lifestyle issues that they were were insisting should be followed. His conclusion was that they were more interested in simply making a good impression. And so he charged them, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. If making a good impression is what motivates you in your spiritual journey, sooner or later you are going to become trapped by your own inability to keep up. At some point you will fail and disappoint yourself. What happens then will define the reality of your faith. Accepting the truth about our weaknesses means accepting ourselves as God sees us. 
When we accept ourselves for who we are and surrender it to Christ, we are set free, whether we really free feel free or not. By this I mean that being free is not a subjective sensation that comes and goes as we feel good or badly about ourselves. If we are in Christ, we are free. It is a positional reality that can change our life choices. For re- in, in reality, it is for freedom that Christ sets us free. And so the way of the cross does not lead to dead-end living. It offers us the opportunity to make an exchange, to move from hopelessness to a whole new way of facing whatever life may bring our way. Jesus' death was followed by resurrection. Similarly, by positioning ourselves as people of the cross leads to a rising from dead-end living to breaking free from the burdens and obstacles that keep us bound to unwanted behaviors. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This acknowledgement that Christ frees us is essential not only for our well-being, but for the establishing of healthy relationships with others. The ability to see ourselves as free in Christ is the root and foundation of our ability to love others and to love God and to truly love ourselves. This is real Christianity, not the following of a project-oriented spirituality, not a tiresome adherence to a system of beliefs and practices, not a worrisome fear of failing to measure up to an externally imposed standard. Life in Christ is wonderfully freeing and fulfilling. It is Christ who sets us free. It is him empowering us and invigorating us to life to the full. It is truly life that is beyond bounds. And it is absolutely available to you. So consider this. What does looking free, or what does living free look like to you? Have you ever thought about it? Picture yourself being free from what so easily entangles you. Click the shutter, frame the image. Ask God to help you live in the reality of the freedom for which Christ has set you free. Let's pray. And now, Father, as we have given thought to this message of the cross and the freedom that it provides for us, I pray that you will help us to understand the significance of that in our spiritual journeys. Maybe here this morning you are bringing to mind to some in a new way, what the cross means and the freedom and liberty that it provides for us. And so I pray today that as we celebrate the resurrected Christ, that we will recall and remember and be brought to an awareness of through this cross that he died on, he set us free. And the resurrection brings that into reality in our lives. So help us to understand this freedom that Christ sets us free for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I asked at the beginning of my talk to you for you to take a chain link and uh, break it off and hold it. I'm going to ask the choir to position themselves 
on the, as they are doing so on the stage behind me, because they're going to help us work through uh, a response together as they sing. You've been holding on to this chain link, and perhaps you are wondering for what purpose. Well, as an act of embracing the truth that Jesus liberates us from the bondages that we face through his death and resurrection. While the cross, while the choir is singing, I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to take this chain link, and we have a receptacle over here in front of the cross. We have some up in, in the balcony if, for the use of those who are sitting there, if you choose. And I'm going to invite you while the, cross, while the choir is singing to take this chain. Just get up from where, where you are. Take your chain and put it in the receptacle in front of the cross as, a, as an acknowledgement that this, this cross that we've been talking about and the resurrection of Jesus that comes to us is, sets us free. And we are celebrating the fact that Jesus does indeed set us free. And so I would just invite you to take your chain link and deposit it in the uh, receptacle there as the choir sings for us. Just feel free to do this as they are singing. So how do we celebrate this Jesus who sets us free? This came to me as I was wrapping up my talk in preparation this week. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to turn towards the cross with the loosed chains in the bucket there. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and join the choir and myself as we break into applause for this Jesus who set us free. There may be, you may be prompted to say hallelujah or praise God. Or maybe you've always wanted to shout in church. <laughs> this is an opportunity for you to do that as we engage in a holy roar of glad and joyful delight to Jesus who sets us free. So stand with us as we celebrate. Every Sunday we have those who are engaged and ready to lead and pray with you. If there's a particular need that you have here today, we'd like to talk to somebody, maybe you have a question about your spiritual journey and you'd like to have somebody to talk to, we have people available that will be at the front of the auditorium at the conclusion of our time. And then on Easter, what would be Easter without hot cross buns, right? <laughs> So there's coffee, hot cross buns out in the foyer for you to help yourself to. If you have children, uh, please uh, go and uh, get them and, and, and bring them back. And now receive this. 
This freedom that God has placed upon you through Jesus, he wants you to embrace, not just for this moment, but for a lifetime. And so take this with you. It is for your freedom that Christ sets you free. Amen and amen. God bless.